The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning to everybody. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So, England starting post-pandemic life, dropping almost all COVID restrictions from today. Despite rising infection numbers and as the UK Prime Minister is forced to quarantine, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, will join us first on CNBC later this morning. In the markets, Asian equities are sinking on renewed virus fears as infections rise in the United States, Europe and much of Asia, with global infections approaching 200 million. Over 180 people have died while hundreds remain missing in Germany and Belgium as rescue crews cleared the wreckage of last week's devastating floods. It is shocking. I would almost say that the German language barely has words for the devastation that has been wreaked. Oil prices slide after OPEC Plus countries agreed to boost supply following a rare public standoff between producers. But the Saudi energy minister plays down the spat. Good uh, that we give you this opportunity to think differently and look at us differently. Uh, we differ here and there, but we bond. I think that's Waterloo Bridge. It is Waterloo Bridge. I just drove over it this morning. Um, okay, you're looking at barely live pictures. I say that because there's not a lot going on at the moment. I mean, what time is it? Well, of course, it's six o'clock, isn't it? I should know that. Um, but uh, yeah, not a lot going on so far in London. But this is the day when um, London can get back to work. The, the work at home requirement or, or advice is being dropped as well. I, I can tell you from the buses I was following in my way in this morning uh, in, in a straw poll of one bus, I reckon it was about... 70-30, the number of people wearing masks as opposed to not wearing masks from what I saw as well, even though the advice and, and the requirement from public transport, and we'll hear that from Sadiq Khan later on, is for people still to wear masks. So uh, this is what has been called and some have dubbed Freedom Day. Now, starting today, social distancing rules and limits on indoor gatherings will be lifted. Uh, citizens no longer legally obliged to wear masks indoors. Now, I'll just tell you on that note, we're all wearing masks here indoors at CNBC, and I wonder how many other companies are giving gentle advice to their employees across the board as well. We deem it fit where we're working to not change our working practice. We still have the same spacing between our desks. We still have the same um, social distancing in place across the company, and we're wearing masks. So that's a CNBC decision. What other companies are doing, I'm absolutely fascinated to hear and see. Now, the rule changes, though, come in uh, despite the UK as a, as, a, as a broader collective of countries, seeing a surge in new cases and hospitalizations amid the spread of the Delta variant. Well, the Prime Minister, Mr Johnson, Health Secretary Sajid Javid, and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak will each mark the day in isolation. 
Uh, this comes after the Home Secretary, a big pardon, former Home Secretary, Health Secretary, uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and came into contact with other ministers. You'll love this U-turn. It took exactly 160 minutes yesterday. 160 minutes for the government to be forced into a U-turn after initially suggesting that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor would not be required to isolate as they were taking part in a pilot scheme, apparently, uh, that would involve daily testing instead, while prompting criticism that ministers worked under their own set of rules. As I say, they switched that run round in, in about an hour. In a video statement, Mr Johnson said he'd only briefly considered not isolating uh, and urged the public to continue sticking to the remaining COVID restrictions. Like so many hundreds of thousands of other people across the country, I've been pinged, I've been asked to self-isolate by the test, trace and isolate system after I've been in contact with somebody who has COVID. In this case, of course, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid. And we did look briefly at the idea of uh, us taking part in uh, the, the pilot scheme, which allows people to test daily. But I think it's far more important that everybody sticks to the same rules. And that's why I'm going to be self-isolating until the 26th of July. Or some might say he stood to the rules because he saw the backlash from the initial statement. Good morning, Karen Cho. Lovely to see you this morning, my friend. And our roles are reversed. Like here I am sitting in your rather comfy seat and there you are uh, in, in, your, in your sitting room or your lounge or your drawing room, one of the most magnificent rooms, I'm sure, in West London. No, look, here's the point. It's not going to change my life a lot because I don't go to many clubs. Uh, I have been taking part in one or two uh, pilot sporting events where uh, there were crowds. And of course, we've seen the worst of the crowds at Wembley. We've seen the best of the crowds. Uh, at some other sporting uh, events and uh, other social events as well. But for most people who are going shopping, who are going to restaurants, who are going to pubs, it's going to be very similar. But for a lot of people, including those wonderful young people I saw uh, this morning at Ludgate Square, who I think were coming out of Fabric Nightclub, Karen, it will change a lot. But the one thing that is for sure <laughs> is that infections are definitely going to pick up. Yeah, something we probably would have done back in the day too, still coming out of a nightclub at all hours in the morning. But, you know, the point around taking masks off at this stage, masks have, uh, I guess, given us a level of comfort around going out and circulating. It's been part of the uh, one of the tools we're using to learn to live with COVID. You take the masks off, you go into public areas. Do we feel less comfortable than what we did a day earlier? And that's the point. You've got a lot of people nervous about going to clubs, but also equally they'll be nervous about going into other facilities if people are not wearing masks. And I, I just question whether it's the right time to be ripping off the mask when you've got so many people also being told to self-isolate last week, what more than 500,000 people contacted by NHS on the app also pinged like the Prime Minister. So you do wonder whether it is the right time to be proceeding with some of these measures, not to mention the chaos we're seeing on international travel. I mean, you're not talking about this, uh, the U-turn on France and potentially other European countries that are this amber plus category now where the people are going to be forced to self-isolate. So I think there's so much uncertainty and chaos going on on the planning around coronavirus, and that's for businesses, it's from consumers. And we know in the business world, the number one thing that people hate is uncertainty. On that note, uh, let's push forward and, and talk about this reopening from an economic point of view. Joining us is Callum Pickering, who is Senior Economist at Berenberg. Callum, weigh in on this. We're just debating what the reopening day, this Freedom Day means for the UK economy. Does it suggest we're going to get another bounce in those economic numbers like we have when we've had other restrictions rolled back? I doubt we'll get a bounce. What I think we'll get is a continued 
uptick in economic activity. The economy seems to be recovering nicely now, but some of those uncertainties that you mentioned are really big ones. We're going to have to take a look at some of the high-frequency data mobility statistics and the like to see actually what are the net effects of the uncertainty of opening up, removing masks and and the like. Does that actually deter people from going out into the high street and to supermarkets and to restaurants to shop and spend? And to what extent do we actually have some real economic effects from, as you mentioned, people being pinged and having to force to, to, to self-isolate? I think the economic trend continues to be up, but it probably moderates a bit from here. Just picking up on the, the pinging that's happening, this NHS track and trace app. I mean, we've seen so many people forced to stay at home and self-isolate just in case they came in contact with someone who may have been infected. And this is having ramifications for the business world. A lot of businesses saying they're just really struggling to staff up at this point because so many people are forced to stay at home. And we know, you know, after what we've seen for the last uh, 12 months or so, hybrid work does have a role, but not in hospitality, for instance. Some businesses need to have the staff physically present. What impact do you think this is going to have on the weeks that we're capturing on the economic data lately? Well, again, the economic momentum is very strong and the economy is likely to continue to recover. These effects will likely create a bit of a headwind. They may moderate the recovery. Indeed, supply shortages, either from uh, people having to self-isolate or even at a global level because of product shortages, um, uh, commodity shortages, those are the things that are holding back recoveries that are, that are creating the headwinds. And again, I, I have to speak here just as an economist, but the options between a um, recovery through the summer, where we have a spike in infections and some supply shortages as a result of that, or shifting to the winter, where perhaps we would have a bigger spike in lockdowns, that winter option would have more economic damage. So in terms of the options that the summer reopening and sort of seeing this through is probably the path with the least economic harm. Again, I'm an economist, not an epidemiologist, but but the economic choice here is actually one for less damage uh, versus a, a delayed opening and waiting to see what happens in the winter. I mean, it, it seems very clear whether we're epidemiologists, uh, journalists, humble journalists or, or indeed economists. We are in a massive, great big English Petri dish at the moment as well. We're an experiment for the rest of the world on, on, on some form of herd immunity. But my point here is about the ramifications that you and Karen were talking about, about shortages across the economy that were COVID caused or recovery caused as well. And the fact of the matter is this is boxing in the Bank of England with a few of them getting way more hawkish now as well. Are we going to get a rate hike anytime soon? Uh, we may get a rate hike sooner than the market expects. I think sort of mid to August, mid to, mid year to August next year, I think is a reasonable approximation for the first rate hike. I think what is now really on the table is the potential for the Bank of England to stop QE in August. I think that still may surprise people in markets. I, I, I think they should have signaled that actually in the in the June Monetary Policy Committee minutes. That that was sensible. What we have in the UK and across the advanced world is some good old-fashioned inflation. People are spending aggressively. Businesses are confident. Borrowing statistics are rising and we have these supply shortages. And we see in house prices, in consumer prices, in wages, in commodity prices, we have inflation and central banks need to react to this. The Bank of England is actually reacting a bit earlier than the ECB and the Fed, but all central banks are going to have to start thinking about these issues soon. 
I'm, I'm going to I'm going to wipe out your 7.3 percent year on year figure because that's including something which I've never heard of. But the 6.6 percent wage growth figure, you know what I'm talking about, Callum. Uh, the 6.6 percent figure as well. That is real entrenched wage increases. That is real inflation. If expectations go down the same path as well, which I gather from what you're saying, they are as well. The Bank of England, if it's going to wait till mid next year, is going to be behind the curve, isn't it? There's a real risk that the Bank of England falls behind the curve. And, and when you look at the wage statistics, the thing to note here is that wages have now exceeded their pre-pandemic trend. Not their pre-pandemic level, but their pre-pandemic trend, despite the fact that you've probably got close to a million in excess labour. So you, we are not yet at any significant a threshold of full employment, and yet you have significant wage inflation. This is the thing that should worry the central bank, because typically central banks have some idea of what uh, kind of an equilibrium unemployment rate is, what full employment is. They, when you get past that, then you see wage inflation. But we're seeing wage inflation while we still have significant labor market slack, which means as that labor market tightens, more will come through. So as you mentioned, I think central banks need to start sounding hawkish. And the first thing that they should be doing is trying to just push up benchmark interest rates. Yields are just too low across the curve. We need some tighten of financial conditions in bond markets. And that will actually give central banks some breathing space to decide what to do next. Well, that's interesting, Callum. I've actually now on the back of that answer completely changed what I'm going to ask you finally then. That soothing of the markets, especially, dare I say it, from US policymakers as well, has meant that yields in the 10-year Treasury in the States has gone down to 1.3%. We have equally low, in fact, lower gilt levels here. And of course, in Europe, we have uh, difficulties in finding positive yields on the curve in many, many places as well. Has the language from the central banks been about soothing the markets when actually what it should be doing is preparing them for rate hikes and tighter policy. That's exactly right. Central banks have been soothing markets. They dislike volatility, but I would argue markets can be very skittish. The bond market can be especially prone to wild swings. So if suddenly the bond markets start to think, ouch, central banks are behind the curve, then you may find in a very, very short period of time, 50, 100 basis points on 10 years across the curve, which would be a huge leap that would have major ramifications for equities, for other risk assets. But ultimately, if central banks think that those bond yields need to be higher because they need to hit their inflation target, then the market is just going to have to suffer the volatility for a while. So it's better for central banks just to start that process earlier to avoid a major taper tantrum down the line. Callum, can I ask you about the implications of the oil price here and on inflation and what we're witnessing so far? I mean, we've escalated so quickly from the 50 handle to above 70, but then an agreement over the weekend between OPEC plus, which may stem the rise as we had some calls for even 100 US dollars a barrel. What do you make of the, the import that we're seeing, that pricing pressure from oil at this stage? Okay. I don't really care all that much about oil prices per se. I care what drives oil prices. So if we have a rise in oil supply, which seems now likely, that will help alleviate some of these global supply pressures, especially where oil is a major input. So that would be a positive development. Of course, that would be then modestly disinflationary. But the oil price spiking over the last 12 months, that really reflects the strong growth recovery and the strong demand. If prices go up because demand is strong, it's not really an economic problem for us. It's when prices go up because we have a big squeeze in supply. And well, we're starting to see some of those pressures alleviate with this decision. 
Callum, thank you very much for joining us this morning and I appreciate you touching all those issues. Callum Pickering, Senior Economist at Berenberg. Later on today, we'll be discussing England's lifting of restrictions with the London Mayor Sadiq Khan. Be sure to tune in for that first on interview at 12 CET. Over 100,000 protesters marched across France on Saturday in opposition to President Emmanuel Macron's latest COVID measures. Let's get out to Charlotte for more. Charlotte, uh, this is a, a heavy reliance on vaccine passports or negative PCR tests. Just give us a sense out on how the French feel about the latest measures uh, used to try and fight the virus. Was interesting to remember these measures announced by President Macron last week that the health pass showing your vaccination status or a negative test will be required from the 21st for culture and leisure venues uh, in France and so for bars, cafes and so public transport from August. So as you said, there's been some protests across the country uh, over the weekend. But again, to put things in context, uh, you, the, the polls show that the majority of French people support actually uh, the measures, including the mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers before public transport as well is all above 60 percent of support from the French uh, population and an impact of these measures that we've seen a massive boom in vaccination more than uh, around four million appointments for first injections have been booked between the 12th and the 17th of July and they had a record vaccination effort as well about 900,000 a day since the announcement so that's really bearing some fruit at least in the short term that this is because of course the race against the Delta variant is very much on we've seen the cases rising rapidly in, in the in the country and average over seven days is uh, is up 108 percent in the country so no the race is on they want to push vaccination because at the moment only 55 percent of french people have had at least one dose of the vaccine 44 percent are fully vaccinated so they want to use the summer to push the vaccination before of course the winter when it becomes more problematic but we've seen already some regions putting some restrictions back in place in the pyrene atlantic there's a region around perpignan the restaurants and bars will shut at 11 p.m for two weeks and masks are mandatory again outdoors, apart from on the beach, because they've seen the explosion of cases in that region. So they're closing, watching the health situation very closely. Uh, but these protests, uh, even though they don't reflect the majority, of course, they could be problematic, in particular for candidate Macron, as we are just a few months before the election. It is a wide political consensus to support his measures. We've seen letters from uh, across the board from different parties, socialist, centre-right, supporting the measures, and letters published, um, for example, uh, this weekend on the Journal du Dimanche in support of these measures. But this could have still some political consequences for President Macron uh, this, if, if we see some social tensions flare up. Now we'll see what the impact is. We know that uh, the extraordinary parliamentary session will be held this week to pass the law, to pass these new measures, uh, to boost a vaccination in an effort to boost vaccination and making, in a sense, um, the life of the non-vaccinated much more difficult in the country. Guys. All right, Charlotte, I'll pick up there. Thank you very much indeed for that. This is the moves we saw on the US indices on Friday, or some of the US indices. Uh, the one I'm really interested in as well, and we'll come to this later on as well, is, is the Russell 2K, which fell another 5.1% uh, in its entirety last week. So actually, whilst the broader biggest indices were relatively well behaved, or the Nasdaq lost 2%, we saw the Dow losing a half percent last week. What we saw on the Russell 2K was a 5% 
turnaround to the downside. So very interesting, some of these moves as well, especially seeing as so far the earnings season is yielding, as you'd expect, some very, very strong numbers as well. A lot more companies reporting in the United States this week, big companies such as Intel and Netflix as well. So this is what the major indices did. As I say, Dow was down at five tenths of 1% of the week as well. Have a look at what the treasuries were doing as well. And this is exactly the point I was trying to make earlier on with Callum Pickering. So, your retail sales on Friday, were they rubbish? No, they weren't. They were up, actually, when they were expected to be down because, of course, no one can get hold of the components for new cars as well. So, actually, they were up 1.1%, although there was a, a May revision downwards. Uh, and what did we else see last, last week? So, PPI, CPI, huge figures across the board. Is there a communicate? I'm just asking the questions, all right? Don't get on my back if you say that I'm getting the wrong end of the stick here. Is there a communications problem from the Federal Reserve to the markets about the state of the economy when you have a 128 yield, yeah, on the 10-year treasuries, when we had a 178 yield on the 10-year treasuries back at the end of the first quarter, when we've got inflation prints that are coming in above 5%. You tell me if there's a communications problem. I'll just ask the question. I'll put the ball on the tee, and you guys can hit it wherever you like. Let's have a look at the US futures and see where they're currently trading as well. Okay, they're on a hot board on your screens, as I hear from the director now. Uh, 154 down the Dow called as well. The S&P called down 16 points. The Nasdaq called down 27 points as well. What you don't see is when you're looking at that board is I have to go right up to the camera because I have eyes of a certain age. That's all I'll say. I was about to do the big reveal though. You know, old I'm. Uh, <laughs> FTSE MIP called down 232 points, best part of a percent. CAC 40 called down, what are two thirds of one percent. FTSE 100 and Zetradax. And we must remember as well, there is just this devastating human societal problem going on at the moment. Huge flooding in this. So we'll get to Annette a little bit later on. All I can say is to all my German friends out there as well, I, I, I wish you well. And I can't wait for you to all get back on your feet if you are affected by those horrible, horrible floods as well. Let's move on on the uh, Asian markets and take a look at where we are. Again, decent size decline. Shanghai Composite down only three tenths of 1%, but the Shanghai uh, is a much better performance than the Hang Seng, which is down 1.6%. The Nikkei losing 387 as well. So uh, declines across the board. Uh, the Australian market's down eight tenths of 1%. One of the best Australian exports. We'll take it from here. Thanks for that, Steve. Coming up on the show, Angela Merkel promises swift financial aid to help those hit by deadly floods in Germany and parts of Northern Europe. We're going to pick up on that story when we return. And for more on the UK's easing restrictions, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right, welcome back. I mentioned the floods. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has promised swift financial aid to regions affected by the deadly floods in the last few days. The German leader described the situation as terrifying during her visit to the state of Rhineland-Palatinate over the weekend. More than 100 people have died in Germany, Belgium and 
the Netherlands. Let's get to Annette, who joins me more. And Annette, not only, of course, are we and rightly talking about the, the social consequences, the devastating consequences as well, but it could have some political uh, fallback as well, given Armin Laschet's um, off-the-cuff or off-camera moments were actually were called on camera as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, Lasha was caught like joking and laughing um, right at the center of the catastrophe, which, of course, didn't go down too well with the general public. And he had to apologize for that. So I think the focus is once again uh, on Angela Merkel and she's praised for her appearance at the at the site and for how she's dealing with the situation. Um, perhaps we just take a listen of what she had to say um, about the situation and how she is assessing what Germany can do to help those people affected. We stand by your side. The federal government and the state will act together to set the world right again in this beautiful region step by step. And that means we have to act quickly in the short term. But it also means that we need a long stamina. Thankfully, Germany is a country that can manage this financially. Germany is a strong country and we will stand up to this force of nature in the short term, but also in the medium and long term through policy that pays more regard to nature and the climate that we did in recent years. That will be necessary too. So while it seems that the water level is actually um, declining in the western part of, of Germany, where we have seen these pictures now with these huge devastations, which is just south of Bonn in, in that border region between Luxembourg, Belgium, France uh, and the Netherlands, the floods are now moving to Bavaria. The city of Passau is at risk to be um, inundated with water. So um, I, the situation is not over. In, in, in other words, and the floods keep on rising, as I was saying, in Bavaria and also parts of Austria. When it comes to what happens next, I mean, for as you were saying already, um, Germany is pledging to, to, to deploy emergency funds to the people affected. But also a debate has started whether the warning systems have actually failed to alert people People because there was a warning um, to the weather authorities here in Germany, but apparently these warnings were not passed on to the local authorities. All the local authorities have not warned people, and that is why people have been in their houses, and there are so many uh, deaths now. The death toll keeps on rising, and it's currently standing at more than 150 people just in Germany. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.